0: Our scripture reading now is from uh, the first letter of John. So this John is the same John the Apostle who wrote the gospel and another two short letters and the revelation of the Apostle John at the end. This is John's first letter, 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 to 12. God is Love. Uh, One contemporary theologian has entitled his major book on theology, God is Love. Uh, His name's Gerald Bray, if you're curious as to who it is. And when he was asked why he did this, he said, well, the love of God is the major theme in the Bible. And as we draw our theology from the Bible, it must be the major theme of our theology too. Well, he's in good company. Uh, Augustine, the church father, wrote 17 centuries earlier about this love of God in one of his sermons on 1 John. And speaking of our life on earth as being like the children of Israel wandering in the desert, Augustine said, How be it if you wouldn't die of thirst in this wilderness, drink charity. It is the fountain which God has been pleased to place here that we faint not in the way. And we shall more abundantly drink thereof when we have come into our own land. What a thought. Drink love and we'll drink it to the full when we reach heaven. But Let me draw out these, these few things from the text. That God is love. That God loves us. And that as God's children, we should love each other. That's the logic of the passage which, God willing, we'll explore. God is love. Uh, The statement occurs here in our passage. It's also a little later in 1 John chapter 4. It's a simple statement, a bold statement with no Qualifiers, No adjectives, adverbs, anything like that. No qualifying clauses. God is love. It's very typical of the Apostle John's writings that its simplicity is, well, it gives way to very deep meaning once we begin to explore it further. It's been said of John's writing, especially of his gospel, that um, it's like a pool that is deep enough for a child to paddle in but deep enough to swallow a whole elephant if it waded in. Uh, John's writings are so simple on the surface, but yet when we get into them, they expose a great deepness for us. The scripture here tells us that God is love, that everything about him is love. He is fully loving at all times. There's nothing about him that is not love. And... We must see our Lord Jesus Christ in this light too as the Son of God. He is love. In him we have the description of the perfectly loving person. It's not just in Christ and in the New Testament, but the love of God is there in all the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's there that God has called us with an everlasting love. Covenant love. It uses a word that means covenant love or love agreed by God. A fixed love. It's that God has made a contract with his people. I'm going to love you, he says. That's my side of it. Full stop. God has made this covenant or contract with his people and the contract is signed in his blood. We've got this ceremony that Abraham went through, so you can read it in Genesis 15. Uh, God came to Abraham and told Abraham that he would be the heir of many, many people. He said, count the stars if you can. Of course you can't. But that's how many people will be your spiritual heirs, he was meaning and God had set his love upon Abraham and upon all of his spiritual descendants. That's us, as New Testament believers. And God would give to Abraham uh, a signed and sealed contract. And the way they did it in those days would be that um, each side of the contract would take, uh, they'd take an animal and they'd, they'd slaughter the animal and they'd cut it in two. So they'd lay lay the cut animals in two, in a line. And each party to the covenant would walk between them. And the idea would be that if they disobeyed the contract, if they broke their side of the contract, they'd end up like these cut in two animals. In Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't walk through. It's just God. And God is saying, I take it all on myself to to keep this contract and this covenant of love. The blood of animals in the Old Testament gives way to the blood of Christ. The covenant, the contract that God has made to lovers is signed and sealed with the blood of Christ. It was shed once for all. It does not need to be shed again. And the the sign of that covenant is a, a sign of blood in Old Testament times. A sign of circumcision. But it has given way to the sign of water and washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit in baptism in our New Testament times. Now God's Love is not at odds with other aspects of his character. We read in the scriptures about the anger of God and indeed his wrath, which is his settled anger. But it's not a capricious anger like human anger, he is angry at wrong. What would you think of a man who saw some flagrant wrong being committed and wasn't angry? Or didn't take whatever steps he could to avert the wrong. As much was in his power. You wouldn't think much of him, would you? So it is with God. His anger and his wrath. And even his hatred that the scripture sometimes speaks of. Is against all that is evil. The Lord does not let evil go with a wave of his hand. Saying, oh, it doesn't matter. His anger is against all that is evil. Let the fact of God's love sink into our minds. I don't say try to imagine it. But let the knowledge of God's love colour all of our thoughts of God. Don't be like the man in the parable who said, I knew you to be a hard man. Don't let resentment creep over you in something that happens or something that God has called you to do. Being resentful against God because you think he's hard on you. God is love. Let this fact seep into our minds and color everything that we think and do. Let the fact of God's love inform our prayers and praise to God. It's a great topic, worthy of all of our praise for his love. So God is love, but God loves us. Love must have a subject. You can't be a loving person, full stop. A loving person must actually love people. So it is with God. His love is perfect within himself. And, and here we begin to stray over the boundaries into things that we can't really understand. Uh, but the love that there is between Father and Son and Holy Spirit is the love of God going out of God uh, to himself, or to the persons of the Trinity. The love is perfect in itself, infinite and complete in itself. But the love of God has reached out to mankind too. Uh, John's famous statement in his gospel is that God so loved the world. He loved the world so much that he sent his son to be a savior of those who believe in him. Verses 9 and 10 in our text here echo that. It's the demonstration of God's love. Here is proof positive that God loves us. It's a definite act in history. The love of God is not just a, a great idea. It's not just something we, we can think about. It's, not, it, it's something that God has done that has come into history in the person of Christ. Christ. He sent his son into the world. For what purpose? Well, John says that we might live through him. It was a rescue mission to save us from death. But positively, it wouldn't just save us from death. It would bring us alive as well. A man who's been pulled from the surf. He's alive. He's lying on the beach. He's gasping for breath. He's saved from drowning. He's alive. But at that point, it's a far cry from a man in his prime, full of vigor and strength and intelligence and energy. By saving us, God doesn't just pull us from the surf and say, you're saved, that's it. It's more than a rescue from death. It's a bringing us to be truly alive. He gives us his Holy Spirit to grow us ultimately to be like Christ. That's the picture of the man rescued from drowning who recovers and grows in strength. When we are rescued by God, when our sins are are forgiven, when we turn to him, it's not the end. God grows us to be men and women of his own. To be more and more like Christ as time goes on. This is the salvation and the life that God came to give us. God sent his son into the world that we might be saved from our sins and truly truly live. And here the apostle tells us how in verse 10 it, it is by propitiation. Which we thought of when we were thinking about our, our, our confession of sin and our forgiveness of sin earlier on. Propitiation is not a word that we use very often, uh, if ever, in everyday speech. Uh, w- when did you last talk to somebody about propitiation? And um, did, they, did they look sort of blankly at you? I, I, I imagine they would. But propitiation means uh, the underlying Greek word has this meaning of turning away of the wrath of God by means of sacrifice. And as Christians, we know that the wrath of God was turned away from us by the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross. His death on the cross was sacrificial. Not sacrificial in the sense of meaning that you, you give up something, that you lose something. Not sacrificial in the sense of saying, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sacrifice my dinner today uh, because I've got such and such a thing to do. It's sacrifice in the sense of an exchange A life for a life. The exchange of Christ's life for our life. It was frequent in the Old Testament in all the animal sacrifices that they had to do. It wasn't that God required bloodshed for its own sake. But all of those sacrifices were teaching the people about the one real sacrifice that was to come, and that was the death of Christ. Death removed the wrath or the anger of God against us. How, by Jesus absorbing that wrath and anger of God like a sponge down to its last drop with not a drop dripping out of the sponge, in his person, he bore The punishment of our sins. This is the demonstration of love. It's what love is and looks like. And it's love that originates with God. God sent his son into the world. He he sent him. See, see it all originates with God. This idea of being sent, again, is is something that's very prominent in John's writings. If you read through the Gospel, it's uh, it's really quite interesting how often he refers to things of people being sent. Uh, Even the pool where the, the blind man goes to wash his eyes and receive his sight. It says that Jesus sent him there. And John explains the meaning of the name. Siloam means sent, he says. It's full of being sent. The love originates with God. Verse 10 tells us that. This love, it's not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Pause to think of that for just a moment. God has loved you all your life. All those days when perhaps you were rejecting him before you knew the Lord. God was loving you actively. His love for you is a personal love. His love cannot be lessened and cannot be increased since it is a perfect love. God's love is not dependent on us pleasing him in some way. Uh, So often our human love uh, is um, it's dependent on other people doing the right things, other people pleasing us, uh, but not God's love for us. It's possible to please God as his children. Yes, it is possible to displease God as his children. But it's not the same thing as making God love you more. Because you are one of God's children, God loves you. He cannot love you more or less. There's a a pale human reflection of this in human love for a child. Those of you who are parents love your children. Where did that love come from? What caused it? You can't tell, it's just there. Do you love your children even though today they've made you feel like pulling your hair out? Yes, of course you do. Your love for them is not dependent on them having pleased you. It's a pale reflection of God's love for us. Yes, we can please God, but his love is not dependent as lo- as pleasing him remember love is active it's not something that's all contained within a person and never goes out of him so it is with god's love for us it searches for us it protects us it honors our integrity it respects our person so god with us as his children He's loved us, he's rescued us. More than that, he's bringing us alive in him. See what this verse is telling us. If you want to know what real love looks like, look to God, not to man. If you want to know why you love God, look no further. It's because he has loved you. So, the, the third stretch in our logic, love each other. The logic of the scriptures moves forward. If God loves us, it says, the scripture says, we ought to love one another. It's logical, isn't it? The great fact of scripture is that God is love. And the great consequence is brought out in this passage is that we should love one another. Yes, we should love God too, of course. Uh, That is there in 1 John as well. But the focus in the particular passage that we looked at is that we love one another. Think about that great commandment that we read earlier on. Yes, we love God. But Jesus didn't stop there. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, On this depends the whole of the the laws and the prophets. The whole of scripture is suffused with this idea of loving God and loving each other. The manifestation of God's love for us, and that love must be received by us, is that we love one another. Uh, And in a way, our love for each other is the manifestation of the reality of God. Uh, these verses frame our text. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God. But the inference is, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And that is a demonstration of the existence of God. Our witness of the reality of God is our love for one another, with the same sort of love that he's loved us. We are to love with that love that God has for us, not dependent on someone pleasing us. Your brother or sister may make you feel like pulling your hair out, but still you love them. The shape and the form, just exactly what love is in the the actual down-to-earth nitty-gritty of everyday life, is the theme of the scriptures. But nevertheless, it manifests God. So the love that God has for us is more than an example. It's the motivation enabling us in, in, and in the sense of a driving force, a dynamic for us as Christians to live our life by it. Now, it's not automatic that once we become a Christian, we automatically become fully loving in the way that God loves us. But that desire to love is planted in us. It's the desire to be like Christ. And the love that is planted in us is to grow and to be nurtured by the Spirit of God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To love somebody is not just a feeling from inside, it goes out. It's replete with doing good to other people. But we need the command to tell us, and it's to be obeyed. One objection raised against the reformers by the Roman Catholic opponents was this. If you are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, as we are, What motive do you have for doing good? If God has done everything for you, why do you need to do anything? A a similar objection was raised by the Arminians of the 18th century. As Calvinists, they said, Calvinists, what is the point of the law of God for you if you're saved by free grace? The Calvinists became to be called antinomian by them, people who thought that the law of God wasn't really significant for them. On the surface, this is the most serious objection to the Reformed faith, one which must be answered. If you are saved totally by love, totally by God's grace, totally by, by what God does, just by faith, what motivation Have you possibly got to do good? It was answered by the reformers. Uh, I'll quote one of the documents from the Reformation here. It's it's the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, if If you're curious, again, it's question and answer 86. The question there says, we have been delivered by God's grace alone through Christ And not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? And the answer comes back to be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, but we do good because Christ, by his Spirit, is also renewing us to be like himself. We do good. We love, we could say, because we have a changed nature. Changed by God himself to be like Christ. And that nature produces love like an apple tree produces apples. It's in its nature to do so. And the answer to that accusation of not having motivation to do good, well, it's here in, in our text that brings this out. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Being born of God, having God abiding in us, will lead us to love and to good works because it changes our nature. And we as Christians will produce love and good works, like the apple tree produces apples and not grapefruit or bananas or whatever. It is by nature. But of course, that production of fruit is a lifelong thing. It's a lifelong work that the Lord gives us to do with his strength and with his grace. So here's the logical flow in our passage, that God is love, that God loves us, and that as God's children, we should love each other. And God loves us by his very nature as his own children. We become his children by the sacrifice of Christ and by faith. And this will bring us to love God and to love his people. His love is prior This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And his love is life-giving and life-saving. And as we wander through the desert of this world, drink in the love of God. It will keep you alive. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God. Thank you for this revelation to us that you have loved us. And thank you, too, O oh Lord, that you have given us the means whereby we may love you in return through Christ our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that we may do. And we pray, Father, that being changed, being made new, being rescued, and being made alive, that we will produce love in our hearts. Not just in our hearts, but might it overflow to to the many around us, and to our brothers and sisters. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.